my first job right out of business school and my managing director, we went on a trip together and he said, Spencer, you know, there's two types of mistakes in real estate. There's type one mistakes and there's type two mistakes. You can only make so many type two mistakes in your career and your career is over. And the type one mistake is a deal that you should have done that you didn't. And you can make unlimited type one mistakes in your career. Type two mistakes is the deal that you shouldn't have done and you did. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the fourth season of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. Real estate investing is not rocket science, but it's not a fairy tale either. It's an incredible investment vehicle that builds and grows wealth. I have done it, and this is why so many of the wealthiest people in America and in the world, actually, invest in real estate as well. Listen in every week to learn about all the different real estate asset classes which strategies experienced and successful investors use to live their best lives and the processes to do it. Don't reinvent the wheel. Just listen in every week to grow your knowledge along with me and to move your finances to a place where you can live an extraordinary life. This show is sponsored by my company, Blue Lake Capital, where we help passive investors grow their wealth through large multifamily investments and funds. To learn more about my company and invest in with me, visit www.bluelake-capital.com. Welcome to Ready to Scale Season 4. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman, broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today, I'm speaking with two guys that started... Basically, a really interesting website that you should check out, Michael Velasco and Spencer Burton. So they're the founders of Adventures in CRE. Collectively, they have 30 years of experience in real estate investing and construction, and they specialize in real estate finance, modeling, and education. And we're going to nerd with them and talk about just underwriting retail and multifamily, the pitfalls and what, you know, investors should be looking at. I really love numbers. I love spreadsheets. It's not, you know, a secret, but, you know, I think it's going to be really interesting to hear those guys and what they have to say about underwriting, especially in today's market. So a little bit about those guys. Michael have overseen over $7 billion worth of real estate opportunities, and Spencer has helped to close $4.5 billion and underwrite 30 billion of commercial real estate. Michael has a master of real estate in finance and an MBA from Cornell University. And Spencer has a BA in international affairs from Florida State University and a master of real estate finance from Cornell University as well. Guys, Spencer, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Yeah, Ellie, great to be here. Thank you for inviting us. Absolutely. I love your website. It has a lot of information about deal analysis, a lot of free information. You also have an accelerated program. But I wanted to kick off our conversation with the, the first part, which is the asset, because we're breaking it down to asset process and strategy. When it comes to the asset part, you basically are underwriting retail and multifamily. Can you walk me through kind of the main differences of what you pay attention to when you underwrite multifamily and when you underwrite retail? 
Yeah, sure. Michael, is it okay if I start here? Yeah, um, go for it. Yeah. I mean, and I'm a little under the weather, so my voice is about an octave deeper. <laughs> Normally, I'm a much, I have a much higher voice, Ellie. So uh, it's actually a great voice for podcasting and and it is know, right. Yeah, broadcasting. Yeah, have perpetually have a cold. Yeah. So you know, in my 20 year career in real estate, and I've been at a variety of shops, institutional and boutique. I spent some time on the development side. Now I'm on the institutional commercial investment side. And I've, I've underwritten pretty much every property type except for hospitality, believe it or not. Michael mm -hmm. has some hotel underwriting experience that's not really my area. Right now at the firm I'm at, we largely underwrite retail. And it's very different from multifamily. I've spent a lot of my career underwriting multifamily, both development, value add, uh, as well as, as core. And so I guess you know maybe I'll describe the difference between underwriting, say, a retail versus a multifamily deal, right? So in retail, it really is about the tenant. And if you're talking multi-tenant retail, it's about the interrelationship between those tenants. So you look at, say, a grocery anchored center, the, the center lives and dies based on the grocer. However, if you do an attribution to profit, the bottom line, a good share of your profit, you might have 67% of your net rentable space is grocer, but two-thirds of your net profit is coming from the inline space. And what that tells me is that the health of the grocer is key because it drives your inline occupancy. But the quality and strength of your inline is as or more important once you, you get confidence in your anchor. And that's in the multi-space. And in the single tenant, which is a lot of what I'm doing right now, it really is a credit underwriting that's understanding, okay, what's the likelihood that this tenant will continue to pay rent through the balance of its term? What's the health of the location? So what's the likelihood that when this tenant, the lease of this tenant expires 7, 10, 15 years from now, that that tenant will renew? And by the way, if they don't renew, you probably lose money on the deal. And so there's a heavy binary risk in the single tenants. And, and so understanding both the ability of that tenant to pay rent throughout the term and the likelihood that the tenant will stay there long-term is, is really key to your underwriting. But there's always a real estate component to it. And whether it's multifamily or, or retail, what you're ultimately trying to, to determine, and now we're getting beyond the quantitative and the qualitative, it's what is the health of this location? What's the likelihood that market rents as a proxy for things like income, population growth, retail spending growth, et cetera, what's the likelihood that those things will grow over time? And even better, what's the likelihood that that growth will outperform my alternative markets that are out there? So, yeah. Michael? Yeah, it's ultimately a breakdown. There's two components, which we always talk about. There's the cash flow and then there's the reversion value. And you know, there's, there's analysis on the cash flow, which in multifamily, it's it's your tenant. It's it's a lot of the market, you know, supply, demand, you know, the basics, you know, as these tenants constantly renew, is there enough demand in the market to keep that going? So there's a whole, you know, analysis. Part of that analysis in the multifamily, and what I'm looking at strongly, and you probably are too, Ellie, is you know, income to rent. Like, what's that percentage, and where is mm -hmm. that going? There are locations where that's a lot healthier than isn't. So there's there's a whole. Real estate analysis, which to me comes down to the reversion value, market demand, you know, where are you located? Where's that building located? Not only in the macro sense, but in the micro sense. And then yeah, really the cash flow, which comes down to the tenants. There's this tenant cash flow analysis, and then there's this real estate. All of them interplay, but I would align the real estate with reversion and then the tenant with the cash flow analysis. So absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when it comes to Retail versus multifamily, like you mentioned, Spencer, you have one anchor tenant, and if they do not renew, 
then you're in big trouble. When it comes to multifamily, that risk is, you know, not as profound because what's the likelihood that 50%, 30%, 20%, of your, you know, apartment complex is going to be vacant? Maybe 10% is reasonable in some markets. 20, 30, 40%, that's a very extreme situation where, you know, with retail, you can get to those numbers very quickly. That, that's so true. And that's, by the way, why multifamily cap rates are so much lower than retail yeah. cap rates, right? There's, there is a level of risk in retail that you don't have in multifamily. And, and to your point, right? Like vacancy goes to 10, 20, 30%. Well, what can you do? You lower rents, mm-hmm. right? You lower rents and you can fill it back up. And I guess the point being getting to break even with multifamily is, is much easier. Getting out of a spiral that there's a concept in retail called the death spiral, which is you lose a tenant, all of a sudden it has an impact on the adjacent tenants. And if your collateral includes those adjacent tenants, you're in trouble. So that's why you get a little bit of juicier yield in, in the retail space. Yeah. Plus you're Absolutely. locked in, you know, you have these long-term leases, right? And so mm-hmm. you look at, you know, again, back to the macro, it's, you're looking at inflation, but inflation is very real right now. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of talk about that. So there's another thing between the long-term leases and the short-term leases. And, and you have to, you know, be sure you're thinking about that because you'll be trapped for, you know, 10, single tenant. It's like, you could be there for 10 plus years, you know, with a two, one to 3% rent bump and, you know, inflation runs away on you. So. Well, yeah, you can, cannot renew in 12 months and raise rents by 10, 12%. It's not going to work. Exactly. That's right. Or the reverse where you need to fill your building back up. You could always drop rents, mm-hmm. which I, no one likes to hear that, but that's your downside protection in multifamily that you really don't have in retail. There's another though, important distinction between retail and multifamily. Like management in the retail side is important, especially the more complex the management say in a multi-tenant situation. But management in multifamily is key. Absolutely. And not everyone has an Ellie Perlman to, to manage their asset for, right? And, and so you have the wrong manager, the wrong sponsor, and an asset that should be performing at X is performing at X minus two. And, and that minus two it could be the difference between breaking even or making a healthy profit. So the right management in, in multifamily plays into this very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to transition and talk a little bit about the process of actually underwriting deals. Can you share with me if you've done anything different during COVID? I'm not talking about early, early days when we didn't really know what, you know, what to underwrite when it comes to occupancy or bad debt. But let's talk about this year where we know that bad debt and delinquency are on the rise. And we know that occupancy is generally stable. Maybe economic occupancy is a bit down, which to the listeners, economic occupancy is when basically the difference, physical occupancy or occupancy is how many doors actually have tenants behind them, tenants that that occupy the unit and economic occupancy is how many of those doors are actually paying rent. So that number is not what it used to be. But I'm curious to hear from you, what has changed maybe this year in the way that you underwrite multifamily assets during COVID? Yeah, I'll chime in. I'm very concerned about, I mentioned it earlier, and it's something that's gone out the window. The rent to income ratio to me is like a big deal. It's one metric of many. Mm -hmm. But when I'm going and picking markets, the goal when you're underwriting to me is basically you have to have the ability to have rents grow. You have to have the ability of people paying rent. You have to have the ability to have rents grow. 
you need to back into a price that you can actually trade within the market, right? And so if you're in a market now and I'm, you know, you read about some markets, people are paying 50, 60% of their, their income, right? You don't see, you know, the economics there, you don't see job or salaries growing at the same pace. Yeah. At some point to me, like me not being at a large institution with right now cheap costs of capital, that's a big concern for me. So what I'm doing now is I'm I'm looking out for markets where there's steady, stable growth. There's a little bit of a supply demand imbalance, but there's ability for rent growth. So it's not these markets that got trash or they've been volatile. It's it's been, you know, whether it was, you know, the GFC or COVID, and you've seen a ton of volatility, you know, places like San Francisco or New York City. But really these markets where people where it's just been steady. You know, place I'm from Philadelphia. Philadelphia pretty much road straight through. And I'm not looking in Philadelphia right now. I'm, I'm looking even a little bit further out. But for me, you know, I really want to make sure on the revenue side that that's going to be secure and growing. So I'm looking for markets that have low supply, high demand, and a low rent to income ratio. That to me helps secure. Right now, that's been my goal. What's happening with that is that, you know, I'm exploring a couple strategies right now. And I know there's there's multifamily and then there's even the single family aggregation strategy. The challenge with that is scale, but there are opportunities there if you can figure out that scale. So that's what's changed, I think, mainly with me as I've been really focused now, like as we're bouncing back to really look at where people are economically. And you can only, you know, and people have been saying it forever, you can only push so far and it keeps going and it keeps going. But I really am looking for those opportunities where there is growth where these markets can catch up to that income to rent ratio on the revenue side. So yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think there are markets in the United States where there's a hot potato effect right now. Someone's going to get left with the hot potato at the end. Mm. Now, granted, we've been saying this for a few years and, and who would have thought mm. that over the last 12 to 18 months, you'd have an acceleration in appreciation. Nevertheless, at some point in, in certain markets, so I think what Michael's saying is there are markets out there that haven't had the run up and therefore your, your downside is protected. Now, of course, some of that gets to your risk appetite. And the downside to, to Michael's suggestion is that there may not be the upside in those markets, but your downside is protected. In addition to that, I feel like a lot of sponsors, and right now I'm, I'm in a posture, so I'm at an institutionally backed real estate private equity firm. That's what I do in my day job. But then I place capital of my own from my own account as an LP into syndicates, such as yours, Ellie, right? And so I'm looking at it from a slightly different lens. My impression is that there are many sponsors that focus on the income side of the equation and don't appreciate as much the expense side. And again, depending on the state, but there are certain states where property taxes is a big concern. And I don't feel like many sponsors give it the attention that it deserves. States like Texas, almost half of your operating expenses come from property taxes. And property taxes go up 5% in a year. You need an offsetting increase in income of 3%, mm-hmm. right? To just to break even on that increase in property tax. Mm-hmm. And so all of us love this appreciation that's happening, but you're going to see it hitting in your property tax. And it's a trailing indicator, or it's a trailing effect, by the way. So you get a big 10% bump this year, you buy the asset at that elevated price a year or two from now, your property taxes get reassessed. And all of a sudden, your healthy NOI is a bit less healthy and you're underwater. And it's a real thing that happens 
to too many properties and not enough sponsors are paying attention to that. You saw a similar thing actually post-Katrina with insurance, property insurance, and, and insurers became more sensitive to storm risk and you had big bumps in insurance and a lot of sponsors didn't have any protection against it. And when your NOI drops, the value of your property drops. That's just the nature exactly. of commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And that's why, you know, I think that every sponsor should consult with a property tax expert because they'll know based on the market that you're at, based, based on the county, how to calculate the property tax every year for the next five, six, seven years because they know which markets are taking your purchase price and use it as the base value and which markets can only increase the property tax by 5%, you know, Arizona. Or 2% so. is in the case of California, right? Yeah. By the or way, 2%. those property tax consultants generally will do that analysis for you for free. Yes. Right. If because you they will want your appeals business yeah. down the road. So mm-hmm. if you're a sponsor and you're not using them, yeah. you're, you're doing a disservice to your LPs. Yeah, exactly. Not good. Because let me tell you, you can miss the projections from the actuals by two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars, and that can kill your cash flow. So that's one thing. And you mentioned also Spencer insurance, which is very true. Insurance costs have gone up. So have a, an insurance broker that will give you an assessment. Talk to your property managers. They'll know what's happening in the market. They have other clients. They're, they're tuned to the increase in insurance costs. So that's that's a, a very good point. Michael, I want to continue you know, with you and I want to ask you, what other pitfalls, what other mistakes you've seen investors do when they're underwriting? What other mistakes have I seen? Mistakes that have been caught, I'll harp on, on the tax piece. A lot of times when you're underwriting, not even just regular property tax, there's a lot of times there's transfer taxes and things. You don't realize that till you get mm-hmm. to the end and all of a sudden you get hit. You know, in some of the areas it's, you know, Pennsylvania is 1%. There's a lot of counties that add a 1% too. And if you're not from the area, you get caught by surprise by that. California, for example, is another one where you could get really hurt. You know, they have this cap 2% growth a year, but then when you sell the property, they mark it up to market. And so you might have underwritten the taxes and then all of a sudden, you know, you get to the close. I, I haven't experienced anybody hit that and miss and, for, and not catch it, but I have been on deals where I worked in California. I used to work for Heinz out in San Francisco. So I was aware of this early on, but I've seen others get close and not realize that they were about to get hit with a massive you know, tax increase, which caught properly thereby reduce the price. So those are some off the top of my head of like near, near mistakes. I'm trying can to think I, Can of I others. offer a couple, you know? Yeah, go for it. So I, I spent a lot of time at a large institution underwriting as an LP. So as an LP, our sponsor GP would, they'd share their underwriting and then we do our own underwriting. And what's interesting is, so you, you have line item after line item. You get your summary line items, right? Marketing, admin, payroll, management, insurance, et cetera. And then you have your subline items, your detailed line items, which could be hundreds of lines long. And what we always did, we always looked at the historicals and then we looked at the GP's pro forma or their, mm-hmm. their forecast, right? Their year one pro forma. And you'd see these historicals that were pretty clear. And then their underwriting number, which was you know, a couple hundred dollars a unit less. And that's always a red flag. It's like, okay, what's special about you 
that makes you think you're going to be able to operate this differently than the previous operator did. And they may have a, a great answer for that, right? But when you're underwriting it, you're looking at that. And so a lot of sponsors, it doesn't take too many levers to get creative like that. All of a sudden, it looks really good on paper yeah. until you dig into the historicals and push back against the reality of their assumptions. And quickly, you realize what's a real pro forma and, and what's yeah. for sale. Yeah. Let, me, um, let me add one more for the developers out there. <laughs> Go ahead. Always update your construction numbers. <laughs> if you're in doing development, especially, you know, you've seen how construction costs have grown. I've been involved in a project where costs rose 13, 14% during the time of underwriting. Like once you get like, when you develop, you'll put a piece of land, you know, you have it under your control. And then during that time, it's a real risk to make sure, make sure you're always paying attention to construction costs because that can get away from you and make the deal infeasible. So I've seen that bite some people and it, it's not a pretty picture. So let me offer thing. one more, Ellie. I'm sorry. But <laughs> got us on a roll here. And Ellie, um, you got to give us one. You, you, the first oh, I, thing ha- I, I have at, a lot of them. <laughs> the first I look at is market rent growth assumption. It's the first thing I look at because mm-hmm. that's how you save a deal is by growing market rent a little bit more. And there's a philosophy, and I think this is largely true, that in the long run, market rent will grow at inflation. And inflation is what? Call 2%, right? And there are certain markets that will underperform inflation because of whatever. Not a hit on Providence or Philadelphia, but those are not considered growth markets versus Atlanta or Dallas. Oh, I'm very aware of that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have markets that will outperform. And over the last decade, we know which of those markets are, Austin's and Nashville's of the world. But in the long run, if we went out a thousand years, technically, right, theoretically, market rent should grow at inflation. And so if I see an assumption, and I saw one actually yesterday, I was looking at at a deal that I'm thinking about doing an LP investment in, and they were using a 4% market rent growth for a 10-year period. And, you know, it gives you pause. And so what I did is I tune that down to 2% just to understand. And in the end, actually, it still worked at 2%, believe it or not. And the 4% looks good, but I still would get my, my preferred return and a little bit of upside even left over. But that's a big one. And that's one of those levers that's incredibly powerful. And not a lot of thought, unfortunately, is often put into market rent growth by some sponsors. And so, yeah, be on the lookout for that one. That's, yeah, that's a very tricky topic, I would say. So we're using axiometrics and the beauty in that you know, tool is that doesn't only give you the basically performance of the market and the submarket. It gives you also at the property level an analysis of the historic rent growth and a forward-looking projection based on multiple, you know, aspects and metrics, what that's going to look like in the next three to four years. So we're looking at their numbers and sometimes, and it's kind of a combination, it's it's axiometrics numbers and they project at the property level what's going to be the rent growth. So that's a very powerful tool because we're not just, you know, it's not based on a feeling or what we the number we want to have there, which is one of the main mistakes I see, you know, sponsors do. The second part of it is, you know, we own a lot of assets in Atlanta, for instance. So we're looking around and we know how much we can push rents in Atlanta. So I can tell you a little secret. We're just on renewals, it's 7 to 10% rent increases on new leases, especially the renovated units. But not only, it can go up to, you know, 19% rent increases 
non-renovated units up to 60, 60, 60% rent increase on renovated units, that's 500 bucks. So am I going to put 20 or 50%, you know, obviously not because that will make the IRR, you know, an infinite IRR and, and really a ridiculous deal. But you got to take the information that, that we have that's an AI-based, you know, technology with the performance of our portfolio and we consult with the asset with the asset managers, with the property managers, what do you think we can do in this market? And we look at the comps. It's a very robust process. And then we come up with numbers. I usually like to see lower numbers, obviously, you know, two to three percent, even though I know in some markets these numbers are ridiculous because I know right off the bat I can raise rents five, seven, ten percent without even blink. Can I present that to investors and show the returns that I get if I do that? Absolutely not. But it's kind of finding the balance between making sense on paper and knowing what I can actually do. And that helps to offset any delays in construction because now it takes a lot more time to renovate. So, you know, Michael, you asked about, you know, one of the pitfalls that I see, you know, from the time we underwrite until the time we close until the time we start the work on renovating units, prices keep going up. So we need to make sure we we have a nice extra budget for that. And the lead time keeps growing. So you have lumber, you know, prices going down, but other, you know, it's really hard to get washers and dryers. So budgeting for those unknowns is something you, we really, really have to do. And if you assume you can rent 300 units in 12 months, well, think again. It's going to take you more time and you probably want to hire a construction manager and not let your leasing and, you know, in-house maintenance team do that. And I'm speaking from experience because the units are not going to look good and occupancy is going to drop because they're not going to have time to renew. So make sure your your budget, those five, seven percent extra for the construction management fee, have a really, you know, good, strong team out there that its entire job is to manage the unit renovation. So these are just some of the mistakes that I've done, you know, when it comes to underwriting. I want to, if it's okay, go back to say, you mentioned axiometrics and just data right. in general and COVID and all these changes that are happening mm-hmm. right now. And I can't emphasize enough. And Spencer, my former job and Spencer's job, it's like data is king and it really yeah. is incredible. And one of the things, it's not just getting the data, but it's challenging and questioning the data also. It's like there's so much data out there and I've seen it. Like I've seen so much data and it's like, okay, well, what is this? These numbers look, whether they're right or wrong, it's like, what is the source of that? And I think as we move forward to this, this data centric model and everybody in real estate, you know, it's all about tech and data. You know, I would say always dive deeper, you know, always get to the yeah. root of it. And that's, that's, I don't know if it's a detriment or, or, a, po- or a positive attribute of mine. Like I get into analysis paralysis because like you're, you're betting money, right? You're betting your money, you're betting other people's mm-hmm. money. And it's like, you want to make sure, and it's all, you know, what do they say? You spin the telescope and, you know, you're in another galaxy with, with numbers when you're on underwriting, but you want to, if something goes awry or whatever, you want to be able to look back and any questions that could have been asked, you asked and had answered. That's my perspective. Like even down, I mean, it's funny, I'm looking at like rent projections and, you know, I'm looking at the macro market and, you know, I talked to you about median household income. It's like, well, I'm finding like census track data for median household income around, you know, it's like I get deep. I don't know if it's good or bad, but for me, I like to have as much data and get to the source of it. 
I think is a really important point there. So I like that you brought up the data because everybody's starting to look to that and get deeper into it. So absolutely. Data is so powerful. And you're right, you can lose yourself in the data sometimes and you also need to question it. So even if it says seven or eight percent, you know, in some markets, I kind of question that, you know, because data can be very powerful, but it can also be wrong. So it's kind of, it's a little bit of art, a little bit of science when, when it comes to making projections. It's also, you know, know your audience. So know who your investors are, what their appetite for risk. If this is just, you know, a property that I'm buying with my family alone, then I can allow myself to be a bit more aggressive and say, hey, we're actually getting an average 25% rent increases, which are, you know, true and real number. Expenses are also going up. So there's some balance there. It's not that this is just a, you know, a fairy tale. I think I can put seven or 8% because I know I can do it at least in the next 12 months. And then maybe there's going to be some correction. I cannot present this to investors. I would not feel comfortable presenting this, but then what number do you choose so you can basically price it right based on what you actually think you can do so you're not going to lose the deal. So we're having these conversations for every deal we're underwriting. And you're at a point now where you're, you, you know, you're at scale to where you have primary data, right? Where like, you yeah. know, you get to that point where your data is in-house and it's firsthand. So, I mean, that's, that's the power of scale too. So there's nothing, there's nothing better than, than that. So. Yeah, absolutely. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about strategy. And I touched on it a little bit about being aggressive versus being conservative. I would love to hear your thoughts about, you know, what's going on today in the market, because there's, you know, supply is not right where it, it was. There's a lot more deal. We're recording this actually on September 1st. After Labor Day, there's going to be a lot more deals, but the supply is still not there. A lot of capital out there and it's cheap capital. They're chasing deals. It's getting harder and harder to find a deal that actually makes sense. We got overbid by close to $10 million from the Whisper, which is the original kind of initial price and before COVID, the price would be around the whisper, maybe a few millions more. Now we're talking about $10 million more. doesn't make sense to us. So you're looking at your underwriting after you lost the deal and you're saying, how aggressive should I get so I feel comfortable enough, but I also win deals and how conservative should I get, but not too conservative because I'm not going to get any deals if I keep staying that conservative. What, what are your thoughts about kind of the balance between being aggressive enough to get a deal, but conservative enough not to make a stupid purchase. Yeah. The key word is discipline. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to be disciplined in an environment like this. And it's easy to start believing the hype. I think the rule of thumb that every disciplined underwriter, when I say underwriter, that the individual who's, who's modeling, analyzing the deal, every assumption you make needs to be supported by some data. Supported in a way that you can say, okay, I believe this will be true based on X and Y. And if you can't support an assumption, don't make it. And that's really what the discipline is. So if you need to use a 4.5% rent growth rather than 3.5% to win the deal, if you can support 4.5% for four, three, four, five years, you have an axiometric or you have a some reasonably, maybe there's, there's some, maybe the rents are under market, whatever it may be, and you, you can support that assumption, great. If you can't support the assumption, don't do it. And if you lose as a result, 
you can be confident knowing that someone else may have done by, mm. at least on your, right, in, in your eyes. Now, there is the conservative versus aggressive thing because it's easy to say that. But then with every assumption, there's some band of possible yeah. outcomes. And I think at the end of the day, where you end up in the band has to be a gut. We call it seasoning. Right? So in real estate, the more deals you do, the more seasoned you become. And really, it is your, your intuition improves over time. And you say, oh, the data is giving me this band. I believe this is going to perform near the more aggressive side of the band. I believe in the, this deal. And even some cases where it's like, yeah, you might push it even a little bit more because not emotionally, but you have some insight. So Ellie, you, you have a lot of experience with Atlanta. You know things about Atlanta that others don't and therefore can make assumptions either on the aggressive or, or conservative side based on seasoning in that market. So th- those are my thoughts. Yeah, I think that's... Very well said. And actually, you know, the other thing is like set expectations. You know, if you're in a market and you have discipline, you know, that's when, you know, you're going back to investors and saying, I'm losing deals or I'm not finding the right deals. Sometimes the best, you know, you've you've all heard this a thousand times, the best deals sometimes are the ones you actually don't make because Mm -hmm. you had that discipline. But it's tough, right? It's it's scary when, you know, you raise capital and then you're struggling to deploy it and then you end up making a bad decision. And I think Spencer, the first time I heard this was from you. You only have a couple of times, maybe once or twice in your career where you can make a bad investment, you know, mm-hmm. before like your, your reputation sunk. And so, you know, it's better to be, again, we're talking about conservative versus aggressive, you know? So, so the other side is really expectation. So if returns are tighter and you believe this is a secure investment, depending on the size of the capital and who it is, like you may go back to that capital and say, Hey, this is the market we're in. You know, maybe I believe this is the best five, you know, the best asset in the market right now. And it's worth going after and it's worth paying for, you know, there's a potential upside, but the reality is we might be stuck with a tighter return and you may just want to live with that. So it's setting expectations and communication. So discipline, set expectations, communication are probably. Yeah. When I, when I was, my first job right out of business school and my managing director, we went on a trip together and he said, Spencer, you know, there's two types of mistakes in real estate. There's type one mistakes and there's type two mistakes. You can only make so many type two mistakes in your career and your career's over. And the type one mistake is a deal that you should have done that you didn't. And you can make unlimited type one mistakes in your career. Type two mistakes is the deal that you shouldn't have done and you did. And so to the syndicators out there, and I, I think, Ellie, you have a fair number of in your audience. It's especially important to you because your credibility with your investors ultimately determine the longevity of your business. And you're better off passing on the deal and letting someone else be the fool than for you to make a type two mistake and ruin your reputation with your investors. Passing on a deal or you don't want to get a deal without the support of the underwriting, right? You want to get why did you pick that? Or if something went wrong, you want an answer for everything, at least internally. So, Well said. Well said. I think, you know, Michael, what you said earlier about adjusting expectations, you're absolutely right. We've experienced it multiple times, you know, the decline, the compression of cap rates that led, you know, from a 20 healthy, quote unquote, 20% IRR to 15 to 13 to 12. And, you know, there's no way you can get a decent deal in a good location with a good tenant base, paying tenant base at 20% IR for the most part, unless it's the deal of a century. So communicating with investors, this is where the market is. 
you know, this is, we're not at an 8% cash on cash environment. We're at six or five communicate that you can find more deals and investors that want higher returns, probably want, you know, higher risk investments. And if this is not who you are and what you believe in, then it's just not a good fit. I wanted to thank you for coming on the show today, Spencer and Michael. We've arrived to the last portion. And I think, you know, the last discussion was very fruitful. And, and, I, and I, you know, 100% agree with what you, you said. But now to the fun part where the audience can actually know you a little bit better. And maybe I should do it at the beginning before we start the conversation. But the first question is, what's your favorite hobby? And please don't tell me underwrite multifamily because I would not accept this answer. <laughs> That's definitely Spencer's. <laughs> no, started, gotta be more. We started Adventures in CRE because believe it or not, real estate financial modeling is a hobby. I'll go first. I think outside of real estate financial modeling, and I jest, but I'm actually not joking because I do love it, is backpacking. So one of the reasons I moved Mm. to Colorado is so I could get into the backcountry and and backpack. And I take my kids out now who are teenagers and that's a lot of fun. In fact, I had Michael to Colorado a few weeks ago and we didn't backpack, but we hiked to a 13,000 foot lake and you know he's at sea level. So I thought he was going to die, but he made it. It was uh, really <laughs> impressive. <laughs> Very impressive Good indeed, Michael. Long, that's what they call me. <laughs> <laughs> What's your hobby, Michael, besides tagging along and joining Spencer's very risky, you know, adventures? I am a, a music fanatic. Mm. I played, I've played guitar since I was eight years old. I used to play in a bunch of bands. I particularly lately, well, not lately, for years, I really love reggae music. So I'm, mm. I'm into that. Yeah, that's my big thing. I play the guitar all the time. I have my, and the other hobbies really just, I have two young kids, infant and toddler. And so I don't have much other free time than, than spending with them, which is awesome. So watching them grow up is like amazing. And I never, you know, it sounds so cliche and corny, but it's actually, I'm starting to really appreciate that. So I really look forward to spending time with them. So those are the two things. Outside of work, you know, works a lot, but those are my two. All right. Second question is, what's the one thing that people don't know about you and you're, you know, willing to share it with us? I'll start with you, Spencer. Let's see. Something that most people don't know. I live, I've lived 10 years of my adult life in Latin America. Mm. And I was in Venezuela when Hugo Chavez won his first election. Yeah, oh, that's my claim. That'd be thing. interesting. Yeah. I'll go along the lines with a musician. I've been to more than 50 Fish concerts and ran away from home to see them in the year 2000 when I was 15 for their Midnight to Sunrise set from Philly to Florida. And I left a little letter on the kitchen table to my mom after I jumped out the window <laughs> to go out with my friends. So that's that's a little something I think most people don't know. I, was, I used to long time ago I used to see fish I don't go see them anymore really but (laughs) all right interesting stuff question number three what do you wish you had known when you started getting involved in real estate investing oh yeah I'll, I'll go first on that one I wish I would have known the breadth of opportunities in real estate when I started I had this very small lens I thought being in real estate meant you were either a real estate agent Mm -hmm. or you were a greedy real estate developer, right? That to me was real estate. And as I've grown in my career, you realize that real estate is the business of space and everything we do is space. And there are opportunities across the spectrum from 
you know, developing and construction through management, asset management, acquisitions, syndicating, LP investing, debt and equity. I mean, there's so many things to do. It's a really exciting and dynamic industry. And I wish I would have known that early in my career because it would have actually put me on the path to where I'm at today a bit quicker. I spent too much time doing residential development and I wish I would have been able to pivot faster. Anyway, that's what I wish. Yeah, for me, I think it's what I did in, in my early career was move around a lot into different positions. And I wish I would have spent much more time up front, like taking it very, Spencer gives us advice all the time to really figure out exactly where I wanted to be and then focus in on that and just go straight. Mm-hmm. I spent, I went, you know, development to then, you know, manage it really COO of a company, managing a bunch of different processes from, you know, closing to management to now being on the GP side, you know, doing acquisition. So I've gotten a large breadth of a lot of things, but for me, I wish back when I was in grad school, I would have really spent a ton of time focusing in on the area that I think I would have loved the most rather than constantly exploring in my professional. It's done a lot of good, but I think it would have been, mm-hmm. it would have been an easier path. So. Circuitous. Yeah. Right. <laughs> okay. Question number four is what's your advice for high net worth individuals, for family offices that want to scale their portfolio in 2021? Spencer, maybe you want to start? I got to start that one. That's a tough one. Advice for family offices that want to scale their portfolio? Mm-hmm. Like, is that asking where should they put their money? Among other things. Among other things. Yeah, there's, look, the market is fully priced in a lot of ways. So if you're looking for, you know, that angle that you're going to beat everyone else, there's not a lot of them right now. You know, the market will change and it it always does. And so I think if I'm a family office, it's more about finding the right horse to bet on for the future, meaning spend time interviewing sponsors, understanding their methodology digging into their underwriting on a few of their deals, understand how they manage, getting to know them personally, and then stick with them. Because the reality, look, the market will do what it does, but if you find the right sponsor to hit your wagon to, you're going to be fine in the long, in the long run. That would be my advice. Yeah, spend a lot of time understanding your risk tolerance compared to your reward. And then, you know, there's a, there's a say I'm in a botch. I don't know exactly the wording, but it's if you're not an expert, trust the expert. And this goes along the lines to Spencer saying, it's like really find that person and that strategy that you believe in. Look for somebody with a track record, somebody that really has the experience and that their business plan meets your risk reward appetite and then stick with that person. It's really you know, my, my best advice. And I do that when I invest outside of real estate. I look for the experts and understand their strategy to the extent that I can and spend the extent that I want to spend time understanding it and understanding it, and then I, I place my bet on them. So that would be my additional advice. All right. Great advice. Michael Spencer, thank you so much for your time today. If the listeners would want to reach out to you or look you up, I know we talked a little bit about your website, but where can they find you? How can they do that? Adventuresincre.com. You can just Google A.CRE and you'll find us yeah, happy to engage on any topic around real estate. Michael, would you amend anything there? Yeah, LinkedIn. We're on LinkedIn. Oh, that you too. Fine. We're active on LinkedIn. We're responsive. Yeah, there. And yeah, we have a contact us through Adventure Sierra. Goes right. We get. We goes right to our to us. So. All right. Thank you so much again for being here on the show with me today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. Appreciate it.
All right. And to you, the listeners, if you would like to speak with me about investing in multifamily, be sure to complete our new investor form on ellieperlman.com. Until then, be bold, be great, keep moving forward, and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.